It'll help you immensely, uh, you folks who are guests with us, to be able to follow along with where we're going. And uh, where we are is in Revelation chapter 12, so why don't you go ahead and be making your way to that book. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, it's the last uh, book of the Bible, so just turn to the back and meet us in Revelation chapter 12. Now what we find in the Word of God, and, and this is a principle that you cannot miss. If you miss this, you'll, you'll, you'll miss your neck, really, in, in, the, in the study of the Word of God. But in 2 Timothy chapter 2, in verse 15, what it instructs us to do when we approach this book is just that. We are to study this book. Now, now listen, if you do not give absolute diligent study, I'm telling you, you can believe all kinds of weird, weird stuff. It takes diligent study, and what he says is study to show yourself approved unto God a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And we say this so often, that if God's telling you to study so that you can rightly divide the word of truth, chances are real good what God's trying to let you know here is if you don't study it, you might fall into the trap of wrongly dividing the word of truth and that's a very very dangerous thing now what we've been doing on Sunday mornings is not having s sermons about the book of Revelation what we've been doing is we have locked ourselves into this thing and we're actually studying the book of Revelation and what you find out about this book is this book divides just about as neatly as any book in the entire Bible uh, what you find in the book of Revelation is that something happens two times in this book that is very significant Heaven opens two times in the book. In chapter 4 and verse 1, heaven opens and somebody goes up. In Revelation chapter 19 and verse 11, heaven opens and somebody comes down. And so you see, what that does for you is that very neatly divides the book into three sections. Before you ever even get started in the thing, God has already given you some very natural divisions. He divides that thing into three. And what you find in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 19 is that John, as he is recording this revelation, he is told to write in, check it out, three tenses, past, present, and future. And Revelation chapter 1 and verse 10 gives you the key. What it tells you in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 10 is that when John receives this revelation, that what has happened to him is he has been catapulted forward in time to a period that is known biblically as the day of the Lord. It is that period of time that would encompass the tribulation period and the second coming. And John is told to write in these three tenses, the past, present, and future, listen, from the perspective of somebody who is standing out at the time of the day of the Lord. And what that all means then is in those three natural divisions that we find is in chapters 1, 2, and 3, John is writing of that which is past, in chapters 4 through 19, he is writing, again, from the perspective of somebody standing out at the time of the day of the Lord, he is writing about that which is present. And then in chapters 20 to 22, he's writing about the future. So what that means is that chapters 1 to 3, from the perspective of somebody standing at the tribulation period and the second coming, that which is past is what? The church age. Okay, that's in chapters 1, 2, and 3. Then in chapters 4 through 19, that which is present, he's writing about the tribulation and the second coming. And then in chapters 20 to 22, he writes about the millennium, the new heaven, and the new earth, and then eternity. 
And what we've been doing for some time now is we found ourselves in that middle section of the verse uh, of the book in chapters 4 through 19. And what's interesting about this section is that the Lord brings John through the tribulation period and the second coming. He brings him through that thing from four different, uh, through it four different times from four different perspectives. Now, I, I want to just say this to you folks who are, are new in the, the study with us, that the reason that a lot of people mess themselves up and find themselves messed up in the study of the book of Revelation is, is number one, they don't see the natural divisions that God makes there with heaven opening. Number two, they don't understand what the day of the Lord is, so they can't determine where John actually is when he is writing from those three tenses. And number three, they also don't understand that in chapters 4 to 19, that he's bringing us four times through the same ground, but each time from a different perspective. And, and I can just tell you from, from being here and teaching this and, and, and talking to people, there is always the same exact reaction when you tell them that that's what's going on in chapters 4 to 19. They all, people will always say, well, that's, that's ludicrous. I mean, why in the world would God do that? I mean, it doesn't make any sense for him to go through the same stuff from four different perspectives, and yet those are the same exact people that if you were to ask them what the Gospels are, what they would say is, well, there are really four accounts of the same life of Christ, but given from four different perspectives, and they wouldn't have any problem whatsoever with that. And what you're going to find is the, the fact that the Bible is amazingly consistent. And God is always, in this book, God is always going to resolve the cord. God gave you four accounts of the first coming of Christ in the Gospels, and he gives you four accounts of the second coming of Christ in the book of Revelation. And the reason he does that is because the Bible is consistent. We saw last week from Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, that in that verse, Genesis 3:15, God was pointing out the direction of human history, and in doing so, what he did in that verse is he identifies three main characters. Do you remember who they were? A woman, a child, and a serpent. And as God is resolving the cord of human history right where we are here in Revelation chapter 12, guess what the three characters are that he talks about here? A woman, a child, and a serpent. And I mean, really, there's just no end to the consistency of this book. I mean, the Bible begins in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1 and says, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. The Bible ends in Revelation 21 and verse 1, and it says that God was creating a new heaven and a new earth. The Bible begins in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28, and what you find there is the first Adam with his wife Eve in the garden reigning over all of the earth. And when the Bible ends in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 9, it ends with the one that 1 Corinthians 15, 45 calls the last Adam, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. And you see him there in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 9 with his wife, the church, in the city of God reigning over all the universe. The Bible is consistent. When the Bible begins in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 10, you find that man's first home was beside a river. When the Bible ends in Revelation chapter 22 and verse 1, you find that man's eternal home, you got it, is going to be right there beside a river. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 17, man hears God say, Cursed is the ground for thy sake. And in Revelation chapter 22 and verse 3, man is going to hear God say, And there shall be no more curse. 
in Genesis, the book of beginnings. It ends in chapter 50, verses 1 to 3, with a believer in Egypt lying dead in a coffin. In Revelation, the book that completes God's revelation to man, it ends in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 4 with all believers reigning in eternity where it says, and there shall be no more death. And I mean, folks, listen, we could spend the rest of the day just showing you how the Bible will begin something in the book of Genesis and he'll complete it all the way through. And when he comes to the book of Revelation, it's going to pick right back up where the whole thing started. I mean, the book just lines up. It, it's, it, it's amazingly consistent. And listen, the reason that this book lines up is the very simple fact that it's God's book. It, it was penned by over 40 different authors on three different continents over a period of over 1,600 years, but it reads from beginning to end as if it had only one author. And the reason that it does is because it did only have one author, and that was God. And check it out, y'all. This is the most amazing thing in all the world to me, is we're sitting in this room this morning in 1998 with God's book in our hands, man, in our own language, and every single word of it, the very word and words of God. What 1 Corinthians chapter 2 tells us about this book is that we have right here the wisdom of God. It concludes the chapter, and a lot of folks don't like this, but you know what it says? We have the, can you finish it? The mind of Christ. You got the mind of God in your hands this morning in this book. And Peter tells us in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3 that in it, he's given us all things, count them, all things that pertain to life and godliness. Now listen, I don't know what life has held for you in the past. I don't know what life is going to hold for you in the future. I don't know what life, I don't know what you're dealing with in your life right at this very time. But I can tell you this with all the confidence in the world that God's got your answer. And several thousand years before you were even born, before you ever faced a difficulty in your life, God has recorded your answer in His book, and He has given you right here everything you're ever going to need to know about anything that you're ever going to face or anything that you're ever going to go through in your life, and you're going to be able to do that coming out on the other side of it, walking with Him in godliness, because Second Peter 1.3 says that He's given us right here all things that pertain to life and godliness. And so that you'd never in a million years have to ever doubt that. You know what God did? God made this thing a supernatural book, and he proved that to you, not only by its supernatural construction and consistency and its unity, but he's also proven that to you by its supernatural fulfilled prophecies, and that this is a book of fulfilled prophecy. 10,365 prophecies, and this book, parts of it are almost 4,000 years old, and check it out, folks, it's got a track record of never missing not one time. That's a pretty good track record, man. You can go to Vegas with that, and you can come out a millionaire with those kind of odds. It's never missed not even one time. You know, I, I hear people all the time that'll, that'll say, you know, I'm just not one who can just, you know, take some blind leap of faith toward God. Now, listen, if you've got his book, you know what? You don't ever have to take any blind leap of faith at God because he proves his existence by the supernatural book that he put in our hands. 
But back to the consistency that we find in the book of Revelation. As I mentioned just a minute ago, in chapters 4 through 19, God brings you four times through the tribulation period, which of course culminates with the second coming of Christ. And each time he does it, God does it very consistently. He does it through a series of seven things. Not six, not eight, not ten, not twelve. He brings you through seven. We've talked many times about the number of seven in the Bible. It's, it's God's number of completion, God's number of perfection in, in the Bible. You, you see the number seven used very consistently that way throughout the Bible. But man, when you come to the book of Revelation, and, and understand what the book of Revelation is now. The book of Revelation is the book that completes the revelation of God. It's the book that perfects the Word of God. By the time you get to the book of Revelation, the Word of God is complete. It's perfected. And what you find in this book of the Bible that perfects the Word of God and completes the Word of God, you find that this book is addressed to seven churches in Asia Minor by him who stands in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks and from the seven spirits before his throne where there were burned seven lamps of fire it was sent to seven stars or seven angels of the seven churches we'll find that there's a seven sealed book which is opened by a lamb that has seven horns and seven eyes seven seals are opened seven angels sound seven trumpets and seven angels pour out seven golden vials containing the seven plagues there's a beast with seven heads a dragon with seven heads and seven crowns there's seven mountains in the book there's seven kings in the book Okay, you got the picture? There's quite a few times when God is completing this book, he's trying to get you to see something about that, that number seven. And when God is bringing you through, in the book of Revelation, and he's bringing you through these four times, through the tribulation and second coming, he does so each time with a series of, of seven. He, he does so the first time in chapter six and seven through a series of seven seals that are opened. Then in chapters 8 to 11, he brings you through the second time through a series of seven trumpets that are sounded. The fourth time is in chapters 15 to 19, and he brings us through there through a series of seven vials that are poured. And then in chapters 12 through 14, this is where we are in our study, and that's why it's out of sequence on, on your sheet there. What he does here in chapters 12 through 14 is he brings us through the tribulation and the second coming for the third time, and he does so here through a series of seven personages that are revealed. Seven personages. And over the last several weeks, we've already looked at three of these personages. Chapter 12 begins in verse 1 and says, And there appeared a great wonder in heaven. And that was Roman numeral, Roman numeral 1 on your outline. A great wonder in heaven, and as we spent the, the time in, in verses 1 through 5 identifying the characters of this great wonder in heaven, we picked up the first three of those seven personages that we'll find in chapters 12 to 14. We've looked thus far at the woman, the great red dragon, and the child. And we've seen that the woman is without a doubt the nation of uh, Israel, the great dragon is without a doubt the devil or Satan and the child of course that was brought forth into this world 
through the nation of Israel and was so hated by Satan, the great red dragon is without a doubt the Lord Jesus Christ. So John says in verse 1 that he, he saw a great wonder in heaven. And to understand what he saw, we needed to make sure that we properly identified the characters. And so we did that. And, and then we needed to make sure that we properly identified the context. And we did, did that last week in verses 6 and 14. That's letter B on your outline. Identifying the context. And now listen, this is so important that you understand that. Especially for the ground that we're going to be moving into this morning you got to make sure where you're going to place the events we're going to see in verses 7 to 17 and we saw last week in verses 6 and 14 that the content in these chapters chapters 12 through 14 it all takes place in the last half of the seven year tribulation in other words the last three and a half years and if you look at verse 14 the end of the verse that's what it's referring to there, if you were a guest with us or you weren't here last week, where it talks about a time and times and half a time. A time is one, times is two, and half a time, obviously, is just that. It's a, it's a half, which totals three and a half, and it's in reference to three and a half years. And all the end of verse 6 does, look, look at the end of verse 6, all it does is spell out that same period of time in terms of days rather than years. And so that you'll understand this, a biblical year is 360 days. And three and a half years of 360 days each equals exactly what you see there at the end of verse 6. 1,200 threescore days or 60 days. 1,260 days days and now listen now that sets the context for us the the things that we're going to see this morning the events that is talked about takes place during the last three and a half years or the last 1260 days of the tribulation period the period of time which the bible actually refers to in matthew chapter 24 and verse 21 as the great tribulation the tribulation period is seven years long the great tribulation is the last half of that, the last three and a half years, the last 1,260 days. And again, understanding that that's the context we're dealing with here is going to help us immensely as we begin this morning looking at Roman numeral 2 on your outline in verses 7, 9, and 10. We're going to see this morning a great war in heaven. So we move from the great wonder in heaven in the first six verses and now in verse 7, we begin the great war in heaven. And I want, I want you to check this out now. I, I mean, think about this. That's the very last place that you would ever in the world expect to find a war going on, isn't it? I mean, in heaven? And yet that's exactly what verse 7 says. Look at it. And there was war in heaven. Now, if I were to give you right now a multiple choice question, and you can see this is in the box on your study sheet there, but if I were to give you a multiple choice question right now, and I said, according to the Bible, okay, now, now, I'm not trying to trip you up, I just want you to think with me, okay? So, uh, according to the Bible, Satan spends most of his time, A, with the demons in hell, B, with God in heaven, or C, with people on earth, 
what would be your vote? A, with the demons in hell. B, with God in heaven. C, with the people on earth. And you know what the answer is? Now, I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to ask you what your answer was. But you know what the answer is according to Revelation chapter 12? It's B, with God in heaven. Now, now listen, the devil would absolutely love for you to think that he's in hell this morning amidst all the fire and the brimstone and the pain and the suffering and, you know, the pitchfork and the whole shot. He'd love for you to think that, but the fact is he's never spent two seconds in hell, and what's more, he never will. And at the second coming of Christ, what's going to happen there is he is going to be cast into the bottomless pit. He's going to be there for approximately a period of a thousand years. At the end of that thousand years, according to Revelation chapter 20, he's going to be loose for a little season, and listen to it, then death and hell is going to be cast into the lake of fire, and Satan will be cast into the lake of fire where the Bible says he will be tormented day and night forever and ever for all of eternity and we can't wait for that moment amen but listen he'll never actually spend any time in what we know biblically to be hell and, and something else though satan is this morning the god of this world and he is the head of the system of evil over which the bible refers to as the course of this world listen satan himself actually spends very little time here on this planet comparatively speaking now again he's got a whole system of evil that is in operation and folks it is extremely sophisticated he's got lots of satanic principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness of this world that we call demons or or, or devils so oh my goodness I mean listen he is definitely present in the world and yes he does go about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour but recognize Satan is not omnipresent like God. He can't be in my backyard and in your backyard at the same time. Now, he's fast, but he can't be, Satan, he cannot be two places and one, at one time. He can't be on the earth and at the same time be presenting himself before God in heaven. And what we're going to find here this morning at the very end of verse 10 right here in chapter 12 is that Satan during this present time is before our God how often does it say there day and night now listen don't get too relieved about that because like I said just a second ago he's extremely fast and he's got an incredible amount of, of, of helpers with tremendous powers themselves but the fact is the very few people on earth have ever been attacked by satan himself now job job can step to the front and job can say that and there certainly are, are many others but god uh, satan does not actually spend that much time right here on the earth now you may have been attacked by him in heaven because i can assure you what he's doing up there before the throne of our god day and night is he's not worshiping him what we're going to find this morning is he is there to make accusations against God's sons and daughters. He's there to make accusations against us. And, and what this war in verse 7 is, is really all about is that time 
And I believe this time is going to be taking place in the, in the very near future, as soon as three and a half years from today. But what this time is really all about is that time when God says, I, that's it. That's it. And what's going to take place when God says, that's it, is the most incredible aerial combat that has ever taken place in the history of the world. A literal war in heaven. And I want you to check this out, folks. I don't know if you've ever stopped to think about this. But God walked down into the Garden of Eden. I've mentioned this the last several weeks. But he walked down into the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. And he declared war. And 66 books and 6,000 years later, the fighting is still going on. In fact, again, I don't know if you ever stopped to think about this or not. But 1,189 chapters later, man, there's 1,189 chapters in the Bible totally. But in all of the chapters of the Bible, have you ever stopped to think about this? There's only four of them where there is not a war going on where there's not fighting of some sort. Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and Revelation chapter 21 and 22. And apart from that, buddy, there's always somebody or some group of somebodies who are being slaughtered with a knife, a spear, a sword, a, a stone, or whatever else they can find. But verse 7 lets us know that here we are way out here in 1998, and what it lets us know is that there is still a war to come, the likes of which and the consequences of which this world has never seen. And I want us, first of all, to spend some time identifying the combatants of this war. The combatants of this war. That's letter A on your outline, identifying the combatants. Verse 7 says, And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought, and his angels so the combatants are obviously Michael and his angels and the dragon and his angels. And I want us, first of all, to talk about this one by the name of Michael. And that's number one on your sheet, Michael. And he, by the way, is the fourth key personage that we find in Revelation 12 through 14. I mentioned to you earlier, we're going to see seven of them in total. He is now the fourth. The woman, the great red dragon, the child, and now Michael. And if all we had was Revelation chapter 12, we really wouldn't know that much about Michael just from what it is revealed here. But we've got, a, we've got a complete Bible. And what we find is that Michael appears five times in the Bible, three times in the book of Daniel, once in Jude, and of course, once here in Revelation chapter 12. And I want you to look back with me, if you would, at the first time we see him show up in the Bible, in Daniel chapter 10. Daniel chapter 10, let's see what we can begin to find out about this guy, Michael. And chapter 10 is a place, and we've been uh, several times before in our study of the book of Revelation, but, but in this chapter, Daniel chapter 10, what's been happening is, is Daniel has, has been praying and fasting for three solid weeks. Now, now listen real carefully so that you, you get this. He's been praying and fasting for three solid weeks, and he's waiting for God to send him the answer. 
And, and finally, after 21 days, an angel comes down in verse 12, and he says, Oh, buddy, Daniel, I've been here a lot sooner, man, but because God sent me down the, w with your answer the first day that you started praying and, and fasting. And, and now check out verse 13. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one and twenty days. And by prince, he's referring to one of the demonic, satanic principalities and powers or rulers of the darkness of this world, the spiritual wickedness in high places. In, in other words, Satan had a specific one of his princes whose territorial domain was over Persia. And when God sent an angel out of heaven to bring Daniel the answer, the prince that was over the kingdom of Persia fought against that angel so that he couldn't bring the answer down to Daniel. But watch what this angel says to Daniel in the rest of verse 13. But lo, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, and I remained there with the kings of Persia. So this is the first time that we see Michael show up, and when he shows up, we find that he is one of the chief princes of God. And the first time that we see him, he's in the midst of battle in the heavenlies. Okay, now again, what we're trying to do right now is just go to the Bible, let the Bible be the Bible, and see what we can find out about this guy, Michael. And what we find is he's one of the chief princes. When we find him, the first time he's in the midst of battle, in the heavenlies and what we begin to find in this very passage is that this this thing that we were just describing that's taking place here in chapter 10 about this satanic power parking himself above the nations to do spiritual warfare what we find here in this chapter is that is not something that is unique to Persia but what you see down in verse 20 it talks also about the prince of Greece or the satanic power over Greece and we can assume from the, this passage that Satan, the god of this world, has set chief demons over every nation of the world, just like we find here with, with Persia and, and with, with Greece. And these chief demons supervise on Satan's behalf the affairs of those nations. There's things going on down there on, on the earth in those nations, but there's a power that has been set satanically over those that's exactly what's going on here and the angel tells Daniel at the end of verse 20 he says all right I'm heading out of here to go fight with the prince of Persia again and he says and when I am gone forth lo the prince of Grecia shall come the prince of Greece verse 21 but I will show thee that which is noted in the scripture of truth and there is none that that holdeth with me in these things but Michael watch this now your prince Michael, your prince. And it becomes apparent that Michael is the specific spiritual power, being that God has assigned to stand up and fight for Daniel's people, which of course is Israel. And if there's any doubt whatsoever about that, it's certainly removed when we come to the next occurrence of, of Daniel and da uh, of Michael in Daniel chapter 12. So Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1 says, And at that time shall Michael stand up, watch it now, the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people. So what we find is that Michael defends 
Israel and God's interest in that nation. And he's, he, he's warring and he's defending that nation against the attacks of satanic principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness of this world. And I want you to notice while we're here in verse 1, what this, this verse is actually in, in reference to. Look, look at it again. It says, And at that time, and at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people. And the question is, at what time? And you know what this verse is talking about, folks? Now, now listen, it is talking about the very thing that we're reading about in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 7. This is a prophecy pointing to the fact that there is going to come a war in the heavenlies. That time in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 7 where there will be a war in, his, in heaven and Michael and his angels will fight with Satan and his angels. You say, well, how do you know that? Because it says right here in the rest of the verse, look at it. That Michael, after he stands up and he does his thing, watch what happens now in the middle of verse 1. It says, There shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that same time. And you know what that's in reference to? The what? The great tribulation, that last three and a half years of the tribulation period. I mean, listen. I quoted the verse earlier in Matthew 24 and verse 21 when Jesus talked about the great tribulation. Do you realize what he was doing was quoting Revelation or Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1? Jesus said in Matthew 24 and verse 21, For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of this world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. And that's the exact context of what we find here in Daniel chapter 12. And verse 1, it's prophesying the great war in heaven that we're looking at in Revelation chapter 12. So we come out of Daniel knowing this about Michael. He is Michael, one of the chief princes. He is Michael, your prince. And he's Michael, the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people, specifically the nation of Israel. And then turn over to the very uh, next to the last book of the Bible. The next to the last book of the Bible, right before the book of Revelation, the little book of Jude. Because Jude lets us know something else about Michael. And that is that he's not your average, everyday, run-of-the-mill angel. Jude in verse 9 says, Yet Michael, the archangel... And just stop there for a second and notice, first of all, that he is the archangel. And the inference is that at least in my mind, if he's the archangel, there's only one. The, the, the prefix arch means chief or first, and he's apparently, from what we learn in this verse, he's the head of all of the angels. He's the commanding general, if you will. And what's interesting is, if you look in all of the Bible, there's only three spirit beings that God ever names in the Bible. Lucifer, who was the uh, anointed cherub that covered, the covering cherub. And of course, Michael, the archangel. And then the other one is, is who? Gabriel, who you might call the announcing angel. And, and he too is an angel of high rank. You, you check it out in Luke chapter 1 and verse 19. And it says that he stands in the presence 
of God. But when you see him, he's not like Michael. Michael is always in the midst of some kind of battle. Gabriel is always in the midst of announcing something. But it would seem, as we begin to just look at these spirit beings that God names, that Lucifer would be the, the most powerful of all of the spirit beings and really of all of anything that has ever been created. And then would come Michael, the archangel, and then then Gabriel, who would be of you know higher rank than the other angels, but not as high, perhaps, as, as Michael. And, and you know, you just in passing, you may want to note that all three of those spirit beings that are named in the Bible just happen to have seven letters in each of those, those words. But verse 9 goes on here to tell us about, and I know what you're doing, L-U-C-I-F-E-R-M-I-C-A. <laughs> Verse 9 goes on here to tell us about a, about a fight that Michael has already had with the devil in times past. Now, now Revelation 12 is talking about a war that he's going to have with him in the future. But there's already been a war that's taken place in the past. And watch what it says about this war in verse 9. Yet Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses and you find here that Satan wanted Moses body for some reason he very possibly could have wanted it to set it up as some kind of a relic or some kind of a sacred sh shrine or some object of worship to further mislead the children of Israel and pervert the true worship of, of Jehovah God in Israel that's a possibility or it could be that Satan understood what we learned when we were coming back through Revelation chapter 11, that during the second half of the tribulation period, after he loses this war, by the way, he's going to be cast to the earth for that three and a half year period. And there's going to be a dude that's going to show up as one of the two witnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ. And for that final three and a half years, that guy, Moses, is going to be all up in Satan's face and he's going to be proclaiming the word of God and he's going to have the power and protection of the Holy Spirit of God so that Satan isn't going to be able to do one stinking thing about it. And maybe Satan understood that and wanted to destroy Moses' body so he wouldn't be able to carry out that ministry in the future. I don't know, but for whatever reason, the devil wanted that body. And once again, because Michael is God's emissary in the matters concerning Israel, he is dispatched from heaven to go do battle with Satan over the body of Israel's deliverer, Moses. And, and notice what Jude verse 9 says about how Michael, the archangel, actually contended with Satan. The middle of verse 9 says that Michael durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke thee and I'll just tell you what cracks me up about all of these prima donnas on Christian television actually it doesn't crack me up it ticks me off and makes me want to puke but they're up on the stage strutting their stuff all over the place speaking to Satan and saying Satan I command thee and Satan you do this and Satan you do that now now that in light of what we see in Jude verse 9 folks is an absolute atrocity the only thing that I know that is more atrocious than that is what took place last Sunday night with the guy from down in Columbus was down at that, uh, Rod Parsley, was down uh, at that TBN, you know, they always on that stage where they're, you know, 
doing all, all that stuff, going freakish. And I'm telling you, man, he is all over that stage, you know, and I mean, they're cranking, man. And he's just, bam! I mean, I, if he hit me like that, I'd fall over too. I can tell you that. But, I mean, people are falling over everywhere. You know what he's saying in the midst of it all? I command thee, Holy Spirit! <laughs> I mean, come on! What in the name of Pete? I'd rather command Satan, but to command the Holy Spirit of God as a human being. Yow! I'm, I'm freaked. But, but now check this out, man. All over the place today, man, people are you know, telling Satan to do this and, and telling him to do that. And all I can tell you is that the Bible says that even Michael, the chief and commanding general of all the angels, he would not speak to Satan directly, but said, The Lord rebuke thee. Even Michael himself in this battle recognized that the only way to deal with the power of Satan himself is to re rely totally and completely upon the power of God and his word. And he says, The Lord rebuke thee. Because you see, when the Lord speaks... What comes out of his mouth? Words come out of his mouth. The word of God. And when it comes out, you know what it does? It rebukes him. The Lord rebuked thee. And all he's got to do is speak. And the words of God, the Lord uses them to rebuke and nullify the power of Satan. And in the Lord's power, Michael was victorious in this battle against Satan. And you see, it, it's, it's just exactly what Ephesians chapter 6 talks to us about, about spiritual warfare. It says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Not your strength, not your power, not your might, but His. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. And that's what Michael did in the past and was victorious over Satan. But again, there's another battle, another war that's going to be taking place in the heavenlies in the next several years that's going to make this one that Jude verse 9 is talking about look like it was just a little tiff. And that, of course, is in Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 through 17 that we're looking at. So, by comparing Scripture with Scripture, we've been able to form a composite of this first combatant in this war that Revelation 12, 7 is, is talking about. And now let's move to the other combatant that will be involved in this war, and let's form a composite of him. Unlike in the case of Michael, where we had to go other places in the Bible to find out about him, this passage, and if you're not there, turn back to, or over to Revelation chapter 12 again. In this very passage, it gives us a very concise and complete composite of this one that is referred to as the dragon. Now, we identified who the dragon is when we were back in, in, in verse 3. But what I want you to see is that in verses 9 and 10, God gives to us here a very thorough composite of him by showing us six titles that are given to him. And you guys, you have enough to, to go on here this morning? We just got started, didn't we? Yeah, all right, cool. All five of us can stay and the rest of you can go home now. But now listen, if you want to know what he's about, if you want to know what he's like, if you want to know how he operates, you know what? 
Revelation chapter 12, verses 9 and 10 is just about all that you're going to ever need to know. And you learn it through these six titles that are given to him. The first one is the great dragon. The great dragon, and even more specifically in the context here, the great red dragon. And I don't know what you're going to think about this, but I do think that it's significant that the term dragon is found in the book of Revelation 13 times. Not seven. You thought I was going to say seven, didn't you? No, not the dragon, baby. He's found 13 times. Eleven of them are here in chapter 12. Then it's found once in chapter 16, and then another time in, in, verse, or in chapter 20. And I don't know if you ever stopped to think about it or not, but there is, there is both a universal lucky number, and there's a universal unlucky number, right? And, and people don't ever associate that with anything, you know, in, in, in the Bible. But coincidentally enough, the, the universal lucky number just happens to be the number what? How'd you know that? You see, it's a universal lucky number, isn't it? For some reason, that number seven is, is more than just Mickey Mantle's number, man. It's, it's the lucky number, which just happens to be the number associated with God in the Bible and all that is perfect and complete. And the universal unlucky number just happens to be the number 13 and that's why when you on a lot of elevators it won't have the 13th floor and when you go to a lot of airports it won't have the gate 13 and you know I mean just go on and on and on with this kind of thing and again nobody ever associates that with anything in the Bible but it begins to be pretty interesting when you just start watching that number 13 in the Bible because what you're going to find is that number is always against God and somehow is going to connect you to the devil for example, the first time the number appears in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 14 and verse 4. And just listen to it. Twelve year, years they served Cheddar Laomer, and in the thirteenth year they rebelled. So the first time you see it, it's connected to rebellion. Then the first man in the Bible who has any connection with the number 13 is a guy by the name of Nimrod, who just happens to be the 13th from Adam, and take a wild guess at what the name Nimrod means. It means rebellion. And when you see him in Genesis chapter 10 and 11, you know what he's doing? He's seeking to set himself up as a king over a kingdom on the earth that is in opposition to God. And the way that he sets this kingdom up is by seeking to unite the world governmentally and religiously. I don't know if you've looked ahead at all, but in Revelation chapter 13... That's exactly what the dragon is going to empower the beast to do during the tribulation period. Unite the world governmentally and religiously in a kingdom that is a kingdom of rebellion against the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, just like Ecclesiastes 3.15 says, if you want to know about the future, then study history. Because God has laid out history, or the future, by laying out history for you in that book. And, and you know what? I'm not even touching the hem of the garment on the 13 thing. We go forever and ever and ever on that thing. But you get the point. But first of all, this second combatant in this war in heaven is identified as a dragon who shows up 
13 times in the book of Revelation, a great red dragon, which is a way of describing the fact that he is an extremely powerful, cruel, slithering, bloodthirsty, intimidating beast. And then verse 9 uses another title to describe him, that old serpent, that old serpent. Now, now notice here that it's not just that. You ever stop to think about that? It's that old serpent. And by the term old, you know what God's wanting to do? He's wanting to connect you to something in the past for some reason that, you know, that, that old serpent. The fact, he's wanting us to see that he's been a serpent for a long time now. And, and listen, you know why he does that? You know why? Because in Genesis chapter 3, now you see we've been around this thing so much that we don't, we don't even know this. But do you realize in Genesis chapter 3 that in that whole temptation of Eve and man's whole fall into sin, that nowhere does it even allude to the fact that the serpent in that garden was Satan? It's not there. In fact, the word Satan does not appear for another 356 chapters away from Genesis chapter 3. Did you catch that? The first time the word Satan appears in the Bible is in 1 Chronicles chapter 21 and verse 1. In Genesis chapter 3, it's a serpent. And check it out. In the whole Bible, God doesn't actually make the positive identification of that serpent until right here. In Revelation chapter 12 and verse 9. Now, it doesn't, of course, take a rocket scientist to go back and figure out who the serpent is because he appeals to to Eve and her temptation with the same things that caused him to fall. But now listen, if you weren't familiar with the fall of Satan, like most people are not, from Ezekiel chapter 28 and Isaiah 14, then hey, you never really know. So God calls him here that old serpent. Because he's finally resolving the cord of what we find in Genesis chapter 3. And this aspect of him as a serpent points to his, his cunning craftiness and, and subtlety. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1 says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 3, Paul writes, he says, But I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. So the title serpent not only identifies who was actually behind the temptation in the garden, but it points to his subtlety, his, his cunning craftiness. That's why... Now, no, I won't even go there. I'm going to just talk about folks that, that like snakes. I'm just telling you, I can't, can't compute, man. It, it, they're just they're crafty, man. They're, they're nasty. They're subtle. You know, that whole deal? Yeah! I mean, every time I see those, those tongue, that tongue come out, I, I can just see him when he's talking to Eve, and he said, hey, baby. <laughs> Feast your eyes on this, mama. <laughs> oh! I'm sorry, honey. I know I'm gross. I, I know I'm... Y- y- y'all know it. She's over there going, oh, he is the grossest human being. 
Okay, the title dragon points to his power. The title serpent points to his subtlety. And then Revelation 12.9 gives us another title. It says that he's called the devil. He's called the devil. Now what's at least somewhat interesting to note is that the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, that Satan is nowhere called the devil. Now it says here he's called the devil. In the entire Old Testament, he's never called the devil. Go, go check me out on that thing. That, that is something that's reserved totally for the New Testament. In fact, the, the first time he's actually called the devil in the Bible, you know where it is? Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, where it says, Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And it's the word uh, diabolos in the Greek. And I mention that not to give you some nuance of the word in the Greek, but to point you to another word that is very close to diabolos in our English language. It's the word, you got it? Diabolical diabolical it's where the word comes from it's the same word that's translated here devil it's also translated in our english king james bible false accuser the same word translated the devil right here false accuser and slanderer so we're forming this composite we know he's powerful like a dragon he's subtle like a serpent he's a slanderer like a, a diabolical Devil. Then Revelation 12.9 gives us a fourth title of this evil combatant, and that is Satan. And I, I know, you know what, we throw these words, we always talk about the devil. We don't ever even know what we're talking about, do we? We, we use the word Satan. We, we, we don't even really know for sure what we're talking about. The, the word Satan is a word that simply means adversary. And something interesting about how you find this, this word used in the Bible is that originally, now listen to this, it was neither a proper name capital S it was neither a proper name and it wasn't necessarily a bad name it was a word that simply meant adversary I'd like to take you to these places but for time's sake we don't have the time to do it but but listen in numbers chapter 22 and verse 22 you need to write this down numbers 22 verse 22 even the angel of the Lord who stood in the path of Balaam to stop him from his sinful intentions is referred to as a Satan. The same exact word. Listen to it. And the angel of the Lord stood in the way for an adversary against him. The Hebrew word is the word Satan. He stood in the way as an adversary against him. In 1 Samuel 29, verse 4, the Philistines feared that David would be their their Satan, that he'd be their, their adversary. In 1 Kings chapter 5, verse 4, Solomon is in the midst of praising the Lord when he entered into his kingdom because he says there was no adversary, no, no Satan. There was no evil that was going on. But now obviously the, the word is also used as a proper name, Satan with capital S, and as such it means the adversary the adversary, the one that has made himself God's adversary, God's opponent. And of course, most of you would understand the fact that in his original creation, he was not 
God's adversary at all. He was Lucifer, the anointed cherub that, that covered. He was the closest to the throne of God, the most powerful and, and beautiful being that God ever created. And according to Ezekiel chapter 28 and, and verse 13 and Job 38 and verse 7, what, what you find is that in eternity past, Lucifer... This being was the one who would have led the spirit beings of God's creation to worship God and to love God, to praise God, to honor God, to glorify God. His name meant light bearer. And he was the one that would actually reflect the light of the glory of God throughout the entire universe. But the Bible tells us in Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14 that in his pride he lifted himself up and made himself God's Satan. God's adversary. He was actually seeking the place of God, and from that point, he's no longer referred to in the Bible as Lucifer, though he still transforms himself as an angel of light. Don't ever miss that. But from then on, he is referred to for just what he is, Satan, the adversary, the adversary of God and the adversary of all that have entered into God's family by being born again spiritually. First. Peter chapter 5 and verse 8 says to us, be sober, be diligent, or vigilant, I'm sorry, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. And one of the ways in which he does that is found in the, the next title that Revelation 12, 9 uses in reference to him, and that is deceiver, deceiver. The one, it says, which deceiveth the whole world. You see, according to, to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4, Satan is the god of this world. And the whole world is his domain. domain. There's not any place, listen, in the whole world that has been exempt from his deception. And, and listen, one of the reasons that he's so... Uh, successful in, in his deception is he is the master counterfeiter and folks we need to come to grips with the fact that this adversary of God Satan he knows more Bible than anybody in this room and if you took every single one of us and put our heads together and our knowledge of the Bible you put it together it would not even begin to come close to Satan's knowledge of the Bible Satan can quote more Bible than anybody in this room and all of us put together. But you see, what he has done is he has found through that, because he knows so much about God, because of the position that he once held, he knows about God. And he has been watching humanity for the last 6,000 years. And you know what he's found? He's found that he has been a whole lot more successful in his evil campaign, not by making people Satan worshipers, and trying to get them to hate God and to set themselves against God, what he's found is that he is much more successful by counterfeiting God, by posing to be God, and through religion, deceiving people into thinking that through their religion, they're actually following God, that they're actually loving God, that they're actually obeying God. I'm talking, hey, listen, you want to know about deception, this is how he is deceiving the whole world. Do you realize this morning, folks, that on this planet, right at this very moment, there are one 
billion out of the six billion people on this planet, one billion people who are alive on this planet at this very moment are trapped in a religious system that according to Revelation chapter 2 and verse 9 is called the synagogue of Satan. The only problem is it goes by the name the universal Christianity. And I'm not trying to be offensive to anybody here that might be a Roman Catholic, but the word Catholic means universal Christianity. And it is a deception. And I'm telling you, it is just wild to watch him work. Check this out. You talk about deceiving the whole world. He's got a billion people trapped in a system of religion that is called Christianity that has nothing whatsoever to do with Christianity, but has everything to do with paganism that has been Christianized. But because they're in that system, they think they're okay. And because they think they're okay, they never look out of their system. You call yourself a Christian. Yeah, we do too. And it's so hard to get them to understand that we're talking about two different things. So you've got a billion people trapped in this system that they can't see out of. They love that system. You've got almost another half of the world's population that are looking at that, and they don't love it. They absolutely hate it. You ever try to witness to a Muslim or a Jew? You know what? You tell them you're a Christian, you know what they think right now? Bam! Roman Catholicism. That's their interpretation of what Christianity is. And so you don't have a voice. You can't say anything to them either because he's deceived the whole world. And he does it in the name of religion. And he gets people trapped into a system that they can't see out of. And I mean, he is a master. He deceives the whole world, and the sad truth is, is that there are people in this room this morning who have fallen prey to the master deceiver. Some of you this morning have your name on the roll of this church, but you're not genuinely saved. You've just been around it so long that you're just part of the fabric. Others of you are a part of a religious system but you have never embraced Jesus Christ and Him alone as your only way of salvation. And if you're a part of any system that adds anything whatsoever, whatsoever, whether it be sacraments, your works, baptism, anything that you want to add to the finished work of Christ, you, you, better, you better watch out because the master deceiver has got you. He's got you in that, that, that religion thing. And then there's others of you that are here and you're not really a part of any religion. You, you've been coming here for some time, and you've been listening about this thing of Jesus Christ being the Lord and being God. You, you've been watching the Bible. You've seen the, how this thing lines up. And man, it, it's so obvious to you that this is truth. But man, you just can't bring yourself to submit to His Lordship and call upon His name. And you know why? Because some of you think, man... I'm just not so sure that I could ever be happy if I become a Christian. And you know what the most deceptive thing in the whole world is? That you're happy now. Oh, I don't think I could be happy as a Christian. 
if you're so happy, then why do you keep chasing after something else, some other carnal thrill to fill yourself? You see, he, he is the master deceiver. He deceives, oh, listen to the words of it, the whole world. And I don't want you to think that we think that we're exempt. I, I want you to know, I, as a, one of the pastors of this church, I pray that God will never help us, or, or, or never allow us to fall pray in this church to false doctrine, to the deception in any way. And I, I, I even pray for those of you that might wonder about this. I, I pray, Lord, if there is something that we've embraced that is not a part of that book and reveal it to us so we can can that sucker. I'll stand before the group of people out there on Sunday and I'll tell them I was that I was wrong. <clears throat> but he deceives the whole world. Then there's one final, final title. Okay, okay. suck it up. Let's get this, this last one, all right? It, don't fall asleep on me. You hear? Okay, I'm just checking. Okay, th this one's found down at the end of verse 10. He's called the accuser of our brethren. The accuser of our brethren. And this is what we're... Now, now okay, now, w please don't, don't, don't get packing up on me, okay? Let's just pack up after amen. Okay, everybody stay focused right now, all right? Now, this is what we were talking about earlier, about where Satan spends most of his time. Now, in the book of Job, what you find is Satan presenting himself along with the sons of God, who would be the fallen angels that went with him in his rebellion. What you find is that Satan presenting himself in the book of Job in the presence of God. And you know what he's doing there? He's accusing Job before God. Now, God did say, have you, have you checked out my man, Job, that there's nobody like him on the entire earth? And you know what the accuser of our brethren said? I'm paraphrasing, but what he said is, you know, the only reason the dude follows you is because you bought him. The only reason he does all that is because all the good stuff you do for him, but you take away his stuff and you'll see, he'll curse you to your bloody face, man. The accuser of our brethren the accuser. And, you, and what, you, what you find out is this dude Job was, was a, a smooth dude, dude man. I mean, he, he, he couldn't point to, you know, God says, have you checked him out? And it wasn't like, oh, are you kidding me? You know what he's do, doing, you know, on the weekends? And you know what he does on Friday night and all that? Deal? No, none of that with, with him. But what we find in Job chapter 1, according to Revelation chapter 12 and verse 10, was not some freak instance because what it says is that during this very time in which we're presently living and will continue through the first half of the tribulation period what Satan is busy doing is he is accusing believers in Jesus Christ before our God day and night day and night and you know what is just so absolutely sad folks is that though Satan is a liar and the father of lies and, and though he is the devil which as we saw earlier meant slanderer and false accuser the sad truth is the accusations that he makes to God against us aren't lies they aren't false accusations are they here he is, the father of lies, but he comes before God accusing us. And when he speaks, the sad truth is, he speaks 
truth because we're guilty and day and night day and night check it out the prosecution for the defense he brings one accusation after another before God the righteous judge and buddy listen he's got the scoop on us because man he's got as many many attorneys working for him as OJ Simpson had working for him so so he doesn't listen he knows the scoop on us and when he comes there he, he, it's not false accusation he he comes and he brings true accusation and he gets up in God's face about the truth of the sin in our lives and I'm telling you my brethren these things ought not so to be amen in light of what he has done for us the fact that the accuser of our brethren gets in God's face and speaks truth about our sin is just an absolute atrocity to the holiness of God but I want to take you to just one final place this morning. We'll park and end here. 1 John, chapter 2. In the light of what we just saw here, you'll never find a more simple, more direct command of Scripture than what it says in 1 John, chapter 2, and verse 1. My little children, these things write I unto you, check it out, that ye sin not. Stop sinning. Period. But you got to appreciate God. And if any man sin. Now, don't sin! And he's never going to command you to do something that he's not going to give you the power to be able to live out. Don't sin. And if any man sin, check this out. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So check it out. Here it is. Here is God, the righteous judge on his throne in heaven. Here is the prosecuting attorney, the accuser of our brethren, who gets up in God's face. Hey there, O Holy One. What it is? You know your main squeeze trots down there in New Philadelphia, Ohio. Uh, have you checked out the dude lately? Did you see what he's into down there? The advocate. The attorney for the defense stands up and he says, Father, what he was just saying there is absolutely true. But I paid for it with my blood. And look at verse 2. And he is the propitiation for our sins. He's the satisfaction for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And while the accuser of our brethren day and night keeps giving those accusations, and it ought not to be, our advocate, 
the defense attorney says, I paid for it with my blood. And if you're here this morning and you've never been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ, man, what an invitation to you today. Not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Here is Satan deceiving the whole world. And Jesus says, and I came to die for the sins of the whole world. And God brought you here today so that you might be able to embrace the forgiveness found through the Lord Jesus Christ. He'll cleanse you of every sin. You're, you're going to continue to sin even after you get saved. I can promise you that. Amen? It's a sad reality. But, buddy, when the accuser of our brethren gets in his face, if your sins have been covered through the blood of Jesus Christ, you know, Satan or Jesus doesn't stand and say, Oh, no, that's a dirty, rotten lie of the devil. No, it's true, but I've paid for it. And he's paid for your sins, and he wants today for you to find the forgiveness that is found only in him. Not through the waters of baptism, not through the membership in a church, not through religion, not through ritual, not through sacraments, not through anything in the world other than the blood of Jesus Christ, which cleanseth us from all sin. And as we're dismissed this morning, we're, we're running just a little bit short of pastors today. Uh, Pastor Frank's on vacation. Pastor Joe and Pastor John are, are in the Philippines. Uh, just uh, Pastor Tom and Pastor Bob are going to be up on either side uh, of the front of this worship, worship center this morning. If you're not saved, listen, before you just get back into the flow of life and start seeing these events take place before your very eyes and find out that you missed God's opportunity, before you get back in the flow of life today, would you just stop? Would you talk to one of our pastors and let them answer whatever question you may have about what this thing is, about how you can find the forgiveness of sins in the Lord Jesus Christ? And we invite you to, to remain and talk to one of these men who will get, if you're a lady, get one of the ladies to, to talk with you. But for God's sake and for your sake, come to know him today. And for those of us that do know him, hey, Let's knock this sinning thing off so the accuser of our brethren will not be in the face of our God. Amen. Now, Lord, would you help us to do just that? I do pray for the salvation of, of people in this room that don't know you. I pray that they will not hurriedly find themselves back in the flow of life and have missed your call to them to bring them into your family. So, Lord, help them to respond today and help those of us that know you to stand in your strength and in your power against the spiritual warfare that we face like Michael will do here in the next several years. Help us this week to stand against the enemy and to stand in the holiness of the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.